All right, we are beginning Daniel 8. It's uh, April 11, 2021. And just to set the stage for this, we're Daniel 8 and and on is quite complex. And we can easily miss things, so we're not going to go swiftly through this. Uh, but we're just going to take our, our time to notice things and amplify them uh, because this is really going to come alive. Uh, this is really some interesting history happening here. And we're not only going to look at the biblical history uh, that we have in Scripture, but we're going to look at what's happening in the world history surrounding uh, what, what's, uh, what's being recorded in Daniel. So uh, we're going to take our time with it, and uh, I think you'll find it to be very, very interesting and, and, uh, and, and really fun and enlightening in the process. So here we go. Uh, let's, uh, let's start with putting Daniel 8 into its historical context. If you remember, Daniel chapters 8 through 12 are written in Hebrew because Daniel is aiming his writings toward his fellow Jews as he records the prophetic history of Israel during the times of the Gentiles. Now, remember, what are the times of the Gentiles? That's an important phrase as we're studying Daniel. The times of the Gentiles uh, basically are from 586 B.C. when, uh, when Babylon invaded Judah and basically the last vestige of the nation of Israel as a both a religious and, and political entity were gone. So when, ba remember, the northern kingdom had already been uh, conquered. The southern kingdom of Judah, 586 B.C., remember that um, Nebuchadnezzar comes waltzing in and, and takes people captive over a period of years, one of them being Daniel. And so at that time, the nation of Israel uh, as a kingdom, as an earthly kingdom, ends. And from that point on, they are living attached to what we call the time of the Gentiles, which, and of course, we know Gentile is anybody who is a non-Jew. So we're dealing with the empires and the political and the religious entities that are non-Jewish. And so this is the prophetic history. This is looking forward at this point in Daniel 8, looking forward to what God is going to do with Israel as it exists with the Gentile rulers that it will be under. All right, so the times of the Gentiles, again, from 586 BC, from the fall of Judah, until Jesus' second coming. So the times of the Gentiles go back to 586 B.C., and they will continue wow. until Jesus sets foot on earth again in the wow. second coming. And, of course, we talked about that in, in Revelation. So the times of the Gentiles is a long time in terms of our, you know, of our human history. All right? So uh, now where does chapter 8 fit chronologically? And we spent a bit of time detailing where chapter 7 fit. If you don't mind, let me go back and review it so that there's no confusion, or at least 
not as much confusion <laughs> about where we're uh, what we're talking about. So let's go back to the timeline. Daniel chapter four recounts the story, the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. All right, that's the that's the focus of chapter four. After chapter four closes, Nebuchadnezzar dies in 562 BC. And we know that from other writings in scripture outside of Daniel. Then, before chapter five begins, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Evil Merodach, takes the throne for two years. So his son, Evil Meroduk, uh, Merodach rules from 562 to 560 BC, two years. Now, one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters marries a former advisor to her father, and this advisor's name is Nereglissar. Nereglissar. So Nereglissar wants to be king. He doesn't like the son of Nebuchadnezzar being the king. So he murders, he assassinates evil Merodach in August of 560 AD. And so Nereglissar now rules for four years from 560 to 556 BC. Nereglissar rules only two months. I'm sorry, Nereglissar has a son by the name of Labashi Marduk. And Labashi Marduk becomes king after Nereglissar dies from what appears to be a, a, a natural death in 556 BC. So Nereglissar, after he murders Nebuchadnezzar's son, only rules for about four years before he apparently dies of natural causes. Labishi Marduk becomes king after his father, Nereglissar, dies. He rules only two months from May to June of 556 because a son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar assassinates him, Labashi Marduk. So we have a second assassination here. And Labashi Marduk uh, is assassinated in 556 B.C. So this son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar who murdered Labashi Marduk is named Nabodinus. You remember that. Nabodinus is the father of Belshazzar. Belshazzar. Okay, so Nabodinus is the father of Belshazzar. Nabodinus, if you remember, becomes king in 556 uh, after he assassinates um, Labashi Marduk. And remember um, that Nabodinus goes on this empire tour. He's doing a lot of infrastructure improvement and that sort of thing. And he winds up making his headquarters in Arabia. Uh, he rules for about 17 years. Ten of those years are going to be spent in Arabia. And so in order to make sure that the kingdom is being run uh, according to his wishes in Babylon, he appoints his son, Belshazzar, as the co-regent or the co-ruler or the co-emperor. So Belshazzar now becomes the co-ruler of the Babylonian Empire, ruling from Babylon itself, while his dad 
is off in Arabia doing whatever he's doing in uh, Arabia. So that brings us now to 550 BC. That is the first year of the rule of King Belshazzar. That's when his dad, Nabodinus, makes him co-ruler, 550 BC. So Daniel chapter 7 begins this way. During the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, all right, so that places the beginning of chapter 7 in 550 BC, during Belshazzar's first year of ruling. So if you add it all up, chapter 7 begins somewhere between 12 to 14 years after the close of chapter 4. But chapter 7 occurs before chapter 5. Chapter 8 begins this way during the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. So if the first year of King Belshazzar's reign was 550 B.C., then the third year of his reign, which is how we begin chapter 8, is about 547 B.C., about seven to eight years before chapter 5 ends with the death of Belshazzar. And, of course, he is killed, remember, when Cyrus waltzes in with his people underneath the, uh, where the river, dry riverbed is, where the Euphrates used to be under the walls of Babylon. They come underneath there. They take Babylon basically without a fight, and they kill the king, uh, Belshazzar. All right, so here's how the books of Daniel line up so we can make sense of that now. In chronological order, we have Daniel chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 7, chapter 8, then chapter 5. All right, so in chronological order, and remember chapters eight, uh, 7 and 8 are about Daniel's two dreams that he has, all right, during the rule of, of King Belshazzar. <clears throat> So it goes chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 7, 8, then 5. All right, so that makes sense now. 7 and 8 occur after 4, but before chapter 5. Okay. Okay? Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right. So <clears throat> now it's going to be important for us to uh, unpack the imagery that foretells the future of Israel during the times of the Gentiles. And again, that's from 586 BC to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Whenever that occurs, the sooner the better, in my humble opinion. <clears throat> All right. There is specific imagery in chapter eight that becomes a key to unlocking our understanding of the end times in terms of empires, what we know about past empires, and what we know about empires to come. Now, a final note, I always encourage us always to read and listen with discernment, test things, always look at more than one commentary or source. I discipline myself to do that, even though it takes me into the wee hours of Sunday mornings, because that's important that we just don't rely on one particular source. So we have to prayerfully ask God to help us discern 
what's true in the midst of a lot of cacophony and chaos and spin and half-truths and deception in our culture today, but we also need to apply that same rule to our study of the Bible as well. As we look at commentaries, my encouragement always is to look at more than one uh, so that you can see how other people think and kind of cross-check both. And my hope is that you cross-check me, that you just don't take what I say to be no pun intended, the gospel truth. Uh, you know, I'm fallible too. I do my best to be correct, but uh, there may be times when I'm when I'm not. All right. So, and and again, I will always tell you when it's my opinion versus when it's researched fact, and that's important. All right. One of the reasons I bring that up is sometimes I find inconsistencies in the Dallas Theological Seminary professors. Sometimes I find inconsistencies there or uh, errant typos, errant references that I know what they meant, but it's not what appeared in, in print. And there's, uh, let me grab this. There's a very good book uh, written by Dr. David Hawking on Daniel. And uh, it's very good. And you know, David Hawking is fallible as well, and a lot of times he's talking opinion versus his, uh, you know, research, but it, it, it's good background. However, in cross-checking this, probably the editors or the publishers put the content of chapter eight under the heading of chapter nine. <laughs> and so, you know, if you're, if you're just new to all this and you pick up this book you're going to get really confused around chapter eight and chapter nine i have no idea what they were doing with chapter eight but chapter nine is not chapter nine it's chapter eight so anyway all to say i think it's very important to always cross check things and and uh and uh do good research all right so here we go let's uh let's put the pedal to the metal here Let's begin with chapter 8, verse 1, Daniel 8. During the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision following the one that had already appeared to me. Remember, that one was in, in chapter 7. In this vision, I was at the fortress of Susa in the province of Alam, standing beside the Ulai River. All right, I'm going to put up a map. And John, I tried to text you the map and it wouldn't go through. I think I'm going to have to mail you these maps, my friend. Um, so for the people that are online, here we go. Let me uh, pull up the first one. Uh, this is, can you see that okay? On your screen? Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You see uh, the, and I, I've, I've circled the, uh, the main points in, in red there. Do you see Sousa there? Yeah. Right around the middle? Okay. The city of Sousa is located about 200 miles east of Babylon. So you see Babylon there along the Euphrates River, a little bit south of present day uh, Baghdad. Mm -hmm. So it's about 200 miles east of, of Babylon. And the city of Susa actually is very important. Uh, and it's going to 
play home and host to a couple of names that we know very well, quite a few biblical heroes. Now, remember, what Daniel is writing about now will come true about 100 years later, right? So the prophecies that he's writing about have not all come to pass yet. <clears throat> the Persian king Xerxes, <coughs> excuse me, the Persian king Xerxes built a palace in Susa. And that's important. You may remember the name King Xerxes because uh -huh. this palace in Susa is the very place where the story of Esther takes place. And later, Xerxes has a son named Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes has a cup bearer whose name is what? Cup bearer to the king. Nehemiah. All that's oh. happening in this all that's happening here in Susa in this in this palace. And uh, <clears throat> by the way, you may see um, Susa also known as Shushan, S-H-U-S-H-A-N. So depending upon the translation uh, or the commentary, it's either Susa or Shushan. All right, I'm going to take down the map, and I'm going to bring up another one here in in, uh, in just a second. And why did you have the uh, canal circled on that one? Okay. It, well, let me go back to the map. That's a, that's a good question. The reason I have that highlighted is because I'm going to read about it right now. During the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision following the one I had already appeared to me. In this vision, I was standing or I was at the fortress of Susa in the province of Elam, which is would be modern day Iran for us, in the province of Elam, standing beside the Ula'i River. All right. The Ula'i River is actually not a river so much as it's a man-made canal. canal. And you see it circled there just north of Susa. Uh, they actually took... Uh, the they, These Persians were into redirecting rivers. I mean, that's how they defeated Babylon, right? By redirecting <clears throat> the Euphrates River. They actually... This Ui, uh, Ula'i River is actually a canal that was built by the... Uh, by the Persians. So that's why it is circled there. All right. So that's where Daniel's vision is taking place that he is there by this Ulai River. Okay. Okay. All right. Moving on. Verse three. <clears throat> As I looked up, I saw a ram with two long horns standing beside the river. One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. The ram butted everything out of its way to the west, to the north, and to the south, and no one could stand against him or help his victims. He did as he pleased, and he became very great. All right, so let's review the verses and stop and look at detail here. In this vision, I was standing at the fortress of Susa, province of Elam, standing beside the Ulai River. Remember, Susa, also known as Shushan, 
in some of your other uh, uh, commentaries. And again, Elam is Iran, modern day Iran. In this vision, I was at the fortress of Susa in the province of Elam, standing by the Ula'i River. And again, that was actually a canal. Now, I showed you one map. Let me look, uh, let me show you another map that gives you a little bit more clarity about the areas we're talking about in terms of modern day maps. All right, can you see my little X there or not? Can you see it on the screen? Okay. All right, so the area that we have mm -hmm. here in the blue circle or the turquoise circle, that's the area we're talking about. Um, the Ulai River or the canal is not there, but it would be in this area right here. Okay. Um, about two, here's Baghdad right here, about 200 miles east is, is Susa. And uh, again, that's going to be in, in what we would call modern day Iran. What's happening in the capital of the Babylonian Empire right now is in modern day Iraq. Right, because remember Babylon, a couple miles south of modern day uh, Baghdad. So that's the area that we're talking about. I don't know if that helps you or not, but it helps me to understand this is what the area looks like now that we're talking about quite a few millennia ago. All right. So he looks at, you need that map up any further, or is that, is that clear to everybody? It's okay. We're good. I'm good. Okay. All right. At the time of the vision here in, in, in chapter eight, the Babylonian empire is still in progress, hasn't been defeated yet, but the Medo-Persian invasion by Cyrus is going to happen. And remember that occurs on October 12, 539 BC, right at the end of chapter five. So Daniel is given this vision of the not-so-distant future as well as a vision into the end times. So this vision that, he's, that he gets is going to take us all the way from what's going to happen soon, the, uh, the takeover of Babylon, the death of King Belshazzar, and then through the second coming of Jesus Christ, which we know about from Revelation. So in terms of the important details we need to look at, let's take a look at this ram. I saw a ram, two long horns, standing beside the river. One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. So the ram has two long horns. One is shorter than the other. The shorter horn is the older horn. It's the original horn. It doesn't grow that law it's long but it not as long as the new one so the shorter horn is the original horn and then this longer horn grows after the first shorter one grows and it is growing later and it's growing longer the shorter horn represents the medes of the medo persian empire the longer horn represents the persians so the Medes only had really a, a short time of, of actually reigning with the Persians. The, the Medes uh, really 
disappeared in terms of importance and might and power uh, fairly quickly. So the Shorthorn or the Medes, now remember Darius, who took over as king after the death of Belshazzar, Darius is a Mede, right? And by the way, parenthetically, Darius may have been the father of Xerxes, who built the palace oh, wow. in Susa that contained the story of Esther. And after Xerxes was Artaxerxes and Nehemiah, the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. So it may be that both Xerxes and his son Artaxerxes are are from the line of, of Darius the first son and grandson. Not for sure, but a lot of historians believe that. Anyway, it's an interesting anecdote. All right, so we got the point, no pun intended, the point about the horns. Shorter horn, the Medes. A shorter uh, stay of power, a shorter reign. And then the longer horn is the Persians, uh, who are far more mighty than uh, the Medes themselves. The Persians extend <clears throat> the Medo-Persian Empire beyond what the Medes helped conquer. And so that's why they have the symbolism of, of the longer horn. Now, the Persians pushed out in this way, and it's in chronological order. And the scripture here follows this. The Persians pushed first to the west, then to the north, and then to the south. All right, let me bring that one map back up real quickly. All right, so uh, the Persians, as they were taking over the Babylonian Empire, first they pushed to the west into Iraq, conquer that into Palestine over here. And then after uh, they're pushed to the west, they push to the north. And so they go into uh, areas of uh, eastern Turkey. And then they push to the south. And when they go to the south, they, uh, they take uh, parts of Saudi Arabia and also Egypt over here as well. So that <clears throat> the push to the south was, uh, was very significant. Okay, so the scripture tells us actually how how they did it, and in uh, history bears out that uh, the scriptures are are correct. Now, the Medes, remember, partnering with them were overshadowed, but it is the Persians who take the most territory. Now, let's remember our empires. That's going to be important. Now, we talked about six world empires in world, ancient world history. The first empire was Egypt, the Egyptian empire. The second empire was the Assyrian empire. The third empire was the Babylonian empire. So that's where our story begins in Daniel 8. The next empire is the Medo-Persian empire. And that's where Cyrus the Persian and Darius the first, the Darius, King Darius the Mede, uh, come into play here. Now, what comes after Medo-Persia? Greece, the Grecian Empire. And then the next empire will be the Roman Empire itself. So it's Egypt, Assyria, 
<clears throat> Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. The ram represents the fourth great world empire, the Medo-Persian empire. But what comes next represents the Greek or Hellenistic empire led by Alexander the Great. Now let's drill down a little bit more into the Medo-Persian and Greek empires in terms of pagan astrology that was rooted in the uh, Zoroastrian religion coming out of Persia. Zoroastrianism out of Persia gave the world what we know as astrology and the basic zodiac chart that is still used today. Now there's an interesting connection between the zodiac chart and astrology and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks. Let's unpack that. <clears throat> the Persians are described in Daniel 8 here as a ram with two horns, right? The zodiac sign for the ram is Aries. In fact, Aries is Latin for ram. So what we find it very interesting that a ram is used to represent the Persian Empire. And then in the Bible here, Daniel refers to the Persian, Medo-Persian Empire as a ram. And that would have been very familiar to those steeped in the Zoroastrian uh, pagan religion. But wait, there's more, as they say at late night commercials. The next great world empire is Greece, or the Hellenistic Empire. In Daniel's vision, watch how Greece is described. Verse 5. While I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly that he didn't even touch the ground. This goat, which had one very large horn between its eyes, headed toward the two-horned ram that I had seen standing behind the river, rushing at him in a rage. The goat charged furiously at the ram and struck him, breaking off both horns. Now the ram was helpless, and the goat knocked him down and trampled him. No one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. All right, so who does the ram represent? The Persian, uh, the Medo-Persian Persian Empire, especially the Persians, yeah. right. And symbolized in Daniel's dream by a ram, which is also the Zoroastrian or the um, astrological sign of the ram, Aries. Goat. Notice what comes and defeats the ram. It's a goat. Well, the word Capricorn is formed from two words, caper or caper, meaning the goat, and cornu, meaning a horn. So it's the goat with a goat with a horn is Capricorn. So even today, Capricorn is uh, symbolized by a horned goat in astrology. In Daniel's vision, <clears throat> the goat with a very large horn between its eyes charges the ram. So the goat, representing Greece, charges the ram, representing Persia, and that goat just assaults the ram. It charges it, and it keeps, no pun intended, ramming it and ramming it and ramming it until the horns are knocked off, 
<clears throat> meaning the, 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 the rule of the Medo-Persians both uh, are ended and Greece tramples, totally obliterates the Persians. And I bring this, this up to you with, with a, a caveat. I am not in any way, shape, or form advocating studying astrology. It's uh, got demonic bases, but, and, and because the signs of the zodiac and astrology are given supernatural meanings that affect destinies, and that's a false religion. However, remember, God made the constellations, and in fact, several are mentioned in the Bible. Orion, the bear, Ursa Major, and the crooked serpent, serpent, most likely Draco, and the group of seven stars, the Pleiades, also mentioned in the Old Testament. But the context of biblical references to these constellations is different. Let's go back very briefly, Genesis 1.14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. So why did God create these constellations that his people could recognize in the sky? It's for the purposes of recognizing day from night and for recognizing <clears throat> seasons, days, and years. So God put those constellations up there for a purpose. Man later, and you can thank the Persians for this, the Zoroastrians, they made it a supernatural thing that, that would affect people's destinies. So they corrupted what God had designed for good in terms of the signs in the skies. Let me uh, just give you a couple other references. Job 9.9, 9. he made all the stars, the bear and Orion, the, Pleiade, the Pleiades and the constellations of the southern sky. Job 38, 31 to 32, can you direct the movement of the stars, binding the cluster of the Pleiades or loosing the cords of Orion? Can you direct the constellations through the seasons or guide the bear with her cubs across the heavens? And lastly, in Amos 5.8, it is the Lord who created the stars, the Pleiades, and Orion. He turns darkness into morning and day into night. All right. So it's important to note the imagery here in Daniel is referring to the constellations that God put in the sky for reference. And God is giving Daniel these visions and these constellations for a reference point. So the Persians are the ram, and Greece is the goat led by Alexander the Great. Does this all make sense so far? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm not losing anybody. All right. <clears throat> okay. So Daniel's vision sees Greece sacking the Persians and the goat defeating the ram. Hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen in about 100 years. This happened very quickly, considering that Al Alexander the Great started to rise to power really uh, around age 21. And he conquered the world from about 334 to 331 BC. It took him just under three years. The language that describes the swift and merciless takeover of the Medo-Persian Empire by Greece 
is led by Alexander the Great. To look at verse 5 again. <clears throat> While I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly that he didn't even touch the ground. There was a common Hebrew saying at the time about being so fast, so swift, that your feet don't even touch the ground. And so that, that idiom, that saying, that Hebrew saying, is being used here uh, in the vision by Daniel. He's saying, this, this male goat moved so swiftly his feet didn't even touch the ground, meaning many of his Hebrew readers would understand that meant this happened really, really quickly. How did Alexander the Great do it so quickly? How did he accomplish it? Well, part of it was he was ruthless. He just killed people. He had no problem, no, no conscience about killing people. And as he would conquer a people, he would ask them, are there other peoples I don't know about? And if they said yes, he'd ask them where they were, and he'd go conquer them. And, and so you see how his power grew so swiftly. Now, Alexander the Great devised a military strategy that was later used by the Roman Empire, and it's called the Wedge. Not that wedge that they advertise on the commercials on TV. That's a whole different story. This is called the military wedge and the roman armies used it later uh dr hawking describes this this is really interesting all right here we go he said the wedge was a line of men single file sometimes too deep with all the rest of the soldiers lined up behind them with the arm armaments in the wedge they would fight against the sun which confused the barbaric hordes that they were attacking and other armies that weren't used to this. They had shields. Again, this is Alexander the Great and the Greeks. They had shields, and they would do what the Romans later decided was a fabulous tactic. They would turn the shields away so that the shiny part of the shield wasn't hitting the sun at first. All right, so the sun is facing the wedge, but they've turned their shields around backwards so there's no shiny part that the sun can hit. As they came close to the advancing army with the wedge, when they were just about ready to do hand-to-hand -hand combat, the commander would, or the general would give the command and they would rotate the shields so that the shiny part was suddenly facing the, uh, the other army, and the sun would hit those shields, and it would blind and confuse the army that was in front of them. Isn't that an industrious tactic? Yeah. It's, it's quite amazing. And um, because they were kind of blinded by that and confused and 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 uh, their attention you know was taken away from the task at hand uh alexander the great and his army and, and later the romans would just annihilate the the other army as they were kind of confused and dazed and wondering what had had happened to them all right so by age 32 almost to his 33rd birthday Alexander the Great 
suffered from his own success. He really died because of his own success, really. The goat became very powerful, but at the height of his power, his large horn fell off. He's talking about Alexander the Great, representing the Greek Empire. Alexander had no fear, and so he was feared. He was vicious, and he was determined to bring the known world under his authority, and he did it. But young and fearless, Andrew Alexander the Great also had a drinking problem. He was an alcoholic. And so just shy of his 33rd birthday, while he's in his late, uh, late 32nd year, he's sitting on the banks of the Euphrates River by Babylon, and he's talking with some of his generals, and he's getting more drunk as the time progresses. And he kept asking his generals, he say, "Is there are there any more nations to conquer?" And they keep saying, "No, no, Your Majesty, no." So, with no more nations in the world to bring under his rule, Alexander lapsed into a deep depression. There were no more people to kill. <laughs> there were no more nations to conquer, and so his mission in life, his purpose in life, was gone. No more territory to claim, no more people to kill, no more nations to bring to their knees. And on top of all this, we believe he contracted malaria as well. So here he is. He's sick with malaria. He's getting drunker by the moment. He's in deep, deep depression. He's a broken man. And he dies just shy of his 33rd birthday. Uh, because of not, not just the malaria, but being a broken man, being an alcoholic, and having lost his purpose in life. And again, Daniel's final comment about him is, the goat became very powerful, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. And so next time we meet, not next week, but the week after, We'll find out what happens as, uh, as he self-destructs and what emerges after the Grecian Empire. All right. So, and that's only through the beginning of verse 8. Wow. So, isn't that amazing? 